This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Recording by Lorraine Bailey. Essays. Book One by Michel de Montaigne. Translated by Charles Cotton. That to study philosophy is to learn to die. Cicero says, that to study philosophy is nothing but to prepare oneself to die. The reason of which is, because study and contemplation do in some sort withdraw us from our soul, and employ it separately from the body, which is a kind of apprenticeship and a resemblance of death. Or else, because all the wisdom and reasoning in the world do in the end conclude in this point, to teach us not to fear to die. And to say the truth, either our reason mocks us, or it ought to have no other aim but our contentment only, nor to endeavor anything but, in sum, to make us live well, and as the Holy Scripture says, at our ease. All the opinions of the world agree in this, that pleasure is our end, though we make use of diverse means to attain it. They would otherwise be rejected at the first motion. For who would give ear to him that should propose affliction and misery for his end? The controversies and disputes of the philosophical sects upon this point are merely verbal. Let us skip over those subtle trifles. There is more in them of opposition and obstinacy than is consistent with so sacred a profession. But whatsoever personage a man takes upon himself to perform, he ever mixes his own part with it. Let the philosophers say what they will. The thing at which we all aim, even in virtue, is pleasure. It amuses me to rattle in ears this word, which they so nauseate to, and if it signifies some supreme pleasure and contentment, it is more due to the assistance of virtue than to any other assistance whatever. This pleasure, for being more gay, more sinewy, more robust, and more manly, is only the more seriously voluptuous, and we ought to give it the name of pleasure as that which is more favorable, gentle, and natural, and not that from which we have denominated it. The other and meaner pleasure, if it could deserve this fair name, it ought to be by way of competition and not of privilege. I find it less exempt from traverses and inconveniences than virtue itself. And besides, that the enjoyment is more momentary, fluid and frail, it has its watchings, fasts and labors, its sweat and its blood, and moreover has particular to itself so many several sorts of sharp and wounding passions, and so dull a satiety attending it as it equal it to the severest penance. And we mistake if we think that these incommodities serve it for a spur and a seasoning to its sweetness, as in nature when contrary is quickened by another, or say, when we come to virtue, that like consequences and difficulties overwhelm and render it austere and inaccessible, whereas, much more aptly than in voluptuousness, they ennoble, sharpen, and heighten the perfect and divine pleasure they procure us. He renders himself unworthy of it, who will counterpoise its cost with its fruit, and neither understands the blessing nor how to use it. Those who preach to us that the quest of it is craggy, difficult, and painful, but its fruition pleasant, what do they mean by that but to tell us that it is always unpleasing? For what human means will ever attain its enjoyment? 
the most perfect have been fain to content themselves to aspire unto it and to approach it only without ever possessing it but they are deceived seeing that of all the pleasures we know the very pursuit is pleasant the attempt ever relishes of the quality of the thing to which it is directed for it is a good part of and consubstantial with the effect the felicity and beatitude that glitters in virtue shines throughout all her appurtenances and avenues even to the first entry and utmost limits now of all the benefits that virtue confers upon us the contempt of death is one of the greatest as the means that accommodates human life with a soft and easy tranquillity and gives us a pure and pleasant taste of living without which all other pleasure would be extinct which is the reason why all the rules centre and concur in this one article and although they all in like manner with common accord teach us also to despise pain poverty and the other accidents to which human life is subject it is not nevertheless with the same solicitude as well by reason these accidents are not of so great necessity the greater part of mankind passing over their whole lives without ever knowing what poverty is and some without sorrow or sickness as xenophilus the musician who lived a hundred and six years in a perfect and continual health as also because at the worst death can whenever we please cut short and put an end to all other inconveniences but as to death it is inevitable we are all bound one voyage the lot of all sooner or later is to come out of the urn all must to eternal exile sail away and consequently if it frights us tis a perpetual torment for which there is no sort of consolation there is no way by which it may not reach us we may continually turn our heads this way and that as in a suspected country ever like tantalus's stone hangs over us our courts of justice often send back condemned criminals to be executed upon the place where the crime was committed but carry them to fine houses by the way prepare for them the best entertainment you can sicilian dainties will not tickle their palates nor the melody of birds and harps bring back sleep do you think they can relish it and that the fatal end of their journey being continually before their eyes would not alter and deprave their palate from tasting these regalios he considers the route computes the time of travelling measuring his life by the length of the journey and torments himself by thinking of the blow to come the end of our race is death tis the necessary object of our aim which if it fright us how is it possible to advance a step without a fit of ague the remedy the vulgar use is not to think on't but from what brutish stupidity can they derive so gross a blindness they must bridle the ass by the tail who in his folly seeks to advance backwards tis no wonder if he be often trapped in the pitfall they affright people with the very mention of death and many cross themselves as it were the name of the devil and because the making of a man's will is in reference to dying not a man will be persuaded to take a pen in hand to that purpose till the physician has passed sentence upon and totally given him over and then betwixt and terror god knows in how fit a condition 
of understanding he is to do it. The Romans, by reason that this poor syllable death sounded so harshly to their ears and seemed so ominous, often found a way to soften and spin it out by a periphrasis, and instead of pronouncing such a one is dead, said, such a one has lived, or such a one has ceased to live. For provided that there was any mention of life in the case, though past, it carried yet some sound of consolation. And from then it is that we have borrowed our expression. The late Monsieur such-and-such, such, a one. Peradventure, as the saying is, the term we have lived is worth our money. I was born betwixt eleven and twelve o'clock in the forenoon, the last day of February, 1533, according to our computation, beginning the year of the first of January. This was in virtue of an ordinance of Charles the Ninth in 1563. Previously the year commenced at Easter, so that the first of January, 1563, became the first day of the year, 1563. And it is now but just fifteen days since I was complete nine and thirty years old. I make account to live at least as many more. In the meantime, to trouble a man's self with the thought of a thing so far off were folly. But what? Young and old die upon the same terms. No one departs out of life otherwise than if he had but just before entered into it. Neither is any man so old and decrepit who, having heard of Methuselah, does not think he has yet twenty good years to come. Fool that thou art, who has assured unto thee the term of life. Thou dependest upon physicians' tales. Rather, consult effects and experience. According to the common course of things, tis long since that thou hast lived by extraordinary favour. Thou hast already outlived the ordinary term of life. And that it is so, reckon up thy acquaintance. How many more have died before they arrived at thy age and have attained unto it? And of those who have ennobled their lives by their renown, but taken account, and I dare lay a wager thou wilt find more who have died before than after five and thirty years of age. It is full both of reason and piety, too, to take example by the humanity of Jesus Christ himself. Now, he ended his life at three and thirty years. The greatest man that was no more than a man, Alexander, died also at the same age. How many several ways has death to surprise us? Be as cautious as he may. Man may never foresee the danger that may at any hour befall him. To omit fevers and pleurisies, who would ever have imagined that a duke of Brittany should be pressed to death in the crowd as that duke was at the entry of Pope Clement, my neighbour, into Lyon? Hast thou not seen one of our kings killed at a tilting, and did not one of his ancestors die by a jostle of a hog? Achilleus, threatened with the fall of a house, was to much purpose circumspect to avoid that danger, seeing that he was knocked on the head by a tortoise falling out of an eagle's talons in the air. Another was choked with a grape-stone, an emperor killed with the scratch of a comb in combing his head, Emilius Lepidus with a stumble at his own threshold, and Alphidius with a jostle against the door as he entered the council chamber and betwixt the very thighs of women Cornelius Gallus the proctor, Tigillianus, captain of the watch at Rome, and, of worse example, Sepusipus, a platonic philosopher and one of our popes. The poor judge Bibius gave adjournment in a case for eight days, 
but he himself, meanwhile, was condemned by death and his own stay of life expired. Whilst Caius Julius, the physician, was anointing the eyes of a patient, death closed his own. And if I may bring in an example of my own blood, a brother of mine, Captain St. Martin, a young man, three and twenty years old, who had already given sufficient testimony of his valour, playing a match at tennis, received a blow of a ball a little above his right ear, which, as it gave no manner of sign of wound or contusion, he took no notice of it, nor so much as sat down to repose himself, but nevertheless died within five or six hours after of an apoplexy occasioned by that blow. These so frequent and common examples passing every day before our eyes, how is it possible that a man should disengage himself from the thought of death, or avoid fancying that it has us every moment by the throat? What matter is it, you will say, which way it comes to pass, provided a man does not terrify himself with the expectation? For my part I am of this mind, and if a man could by any means avoid it, though by creeping under a calf's skin, I am one that should not be ashamed of the shift. All I aim at is to pass my time at my ease, and the recreations that will most contribute to it I take hold of, as little glorious and exemplary as you will. I had rather seem mad and a sluggard, so that my defects are agreeable to myself, or that I am not painfully conscious of them, than be wise and chaptious. But tis folly to think of doing anything that way. They go, they come, they gallop and dance, and not a word of death. All this is very fine, but withal, when it comes either to themselves, their wives, their children, or friends, surprising them at unawares and unprepared, then, what torment, what outcries, what madness and despair! Did you ever see anything so subdued, so changed, and so confounded? A man must, therefore, make more early provision for it. And this brutish negligence, could it possibly lodge in the brain of any man of sense, which I think utterly impossible, sells us its merchandise too dear. Were it an enemy that could be avoided, I would then advise to borrow arms even of cowardice itself. But seeing it is not, and that it will catch you as well flying and playing the poltroon as standing to it like an honest man, he pursues the flying poltroon, nor spares the hamstrings of the unwarlike youth who turns his back. And seeing that no temper of arms is of proof to secure us, let him hide beneath iron or brass in his fear. Death will pull his head out of his armor. Let us learn bravely to stand our ground and fight him. And to begin to deprive him of the greatest advantage he has over us, let us take away quite contrary to the common course. Let us disarm him of his novelty and strangeness. Let us converse and be familiar with him, and have nothing so frequent in our thoughts as death. Upon all occasions represent him to our imagination, in his every shape. At the stumbling of a horse, at the falling of a tile, at the least prick with the pin, let us presently consider and say to ourselves, Well, and what if it had been death itself? And thereupon let us encourage and fortify ourselves. Let us evermore, amidst our jollity and feasting, set the remembrance of our frail condition before our eyes, never suffering ourselves to be so far transported with our delights, but that we have some intervals of reflecting upon and considering how many several ways this jollity of ours tends to death, and with how many dangers it threatens it. 
the Egyptians were wont to do after this manner, who in the height of their feasting and mirth caused the dried skeleton of a man to be brought into the room to serve for a memento to their guests. Think each day when past is thy last. The next day, as unexpected, will be more welcome. Where death waits for us is uncertain. Let us look for him everywhere. The premeditation of death is the premeditation of liberty. He who has learned to die has unlearned to serve. There is nothing evil in life for him who rightly comprehends that the privation of life is no evil. To know how to die delivers us from all subjection and constraint. Paulus Emilius answered him whom the miserable king of Macedon, his prisoner, sent to entreat him that he would not lead him in his triumph. Let him make that request to himself. In truth, in all things, if nature do not help a little, it is very hard for art and industry to perform anything to purpose. I am in my own nature not melancholic but meditative, and there is nothing I have more continually entertained myself withal than imaginations of death, even in the most wanton time of my age, when my florid age rejoiced in pleasant spring. In the company of ladies and at games, some have perhaps thought me possessed with some jealousy, or the uncertainty of some hope, whilst I was entertaining myself with the remembrance of some one, surprised, a few days before, with the burning fever of which he died, returning from an entertainment like this with his head full of idle fancies of love and jollity, as mine was then, and that, for aught I knew, the same destiny was attending me. Presently the present will have gone, never to be recalled. Yet did not this thought wrinkle my forehead any more than any other? It is impossible, but we must feel a sting in such imaginations as these at first. But with often turning and returning them in one's mind, they, at last, become so familiar as to be no trouble at all. Otherwise I, for my part, should be in a perpetual fright and frenzy. For never man was so distrustful of his life, never man so uncertain as to its duration. Neither health, which I have hitherto ever enjoyed very strong and vigorous and very seldom interrupted, does prolong, nor sickness contract my hopes. Every minute, methinks, I am escaping, and it eternally runs in my mind that what may be done tomorrow may be done today. Hazards and dangers do, in truth, little or nothing hasten our end. And if we consider how many thousands more remain and hang over our heads, besides the accident that immediately threatens us, we shall find that the sound and the sick, those that are abroad at sea and those that sit by the fire, those who are engaged in battle and those who sit idle at home, are the one as near it as the other. No man is more fragile than another, no man more certain than another of tomorrow. For anything I have to do before I die, the longest leisure would appear too short, were it but an hour's business I had to do. A friend of mine the other day, turning over my tablets, found therein a memorandum of something I would have done after my decease whereupon I told him, as it was really true, that though I was no more than a league's distance only from my own house, and merry and well, yet when that thing came into my head I made haste to write it down there, because I was not certain to live till I came home. As a man, that am eternally brooding over my own thoughts, 
and confine them to my own particular concerns, I am at all hours as well prepared as I am ever like to be, and death, whenever he shall come, can bring nothing along with him I did not expect long before. We should always, as near as we can, be booted and spurred, and ready to go, and above all things take care, at that time, to have no business with any one but oneself. Why, for so short a life, tease ourselves with so many projects? For we shall there find work enough to do without any need of addition. One man complains, more than of death, that he is thereby prevented of a glorious victory. Another, that he must die before he has married his daughter or educated his children. A third seems only trouble that he must lose the society of his wife. A fourth, the conversation of his son, as the principal comfort and concern of his being. For my part, I am, thanks be to God, at this instant in such a condition that I am ready to dislodge, whenever it shall please him, without regret for anything whatsoever. I disengage myself throughout from all worldly relations. My leave is soon taken of all but myself. Never did any one prepare to bid adieu to the world more absolutely and unreservedly, and to shake hands with all manner of interest in it than I expect to do. The deadest deaths are the best. Wretch that I am, they cry, one fatal day has deprived me of all joys of life. And the builder, Manuet, he says, the works remain incomplete, the tall pinnacles of the walls unmade. A man must design nothing that will require so much time to the finishing, or at least with no such passionate desire to see it brought to perfection. We are born to action. When I die, let it be doing that I had designed. I would always have a man to be doing, and, as much as in him lies, to extend and spin out the offices of life and then let death take me planting my cabbages, indifferent to him, and still less of my gardens not being finished. I saw one die, who, at his last gasp, complained of nothing so much as that destiny was about to cut the thread of a chronicle he was then compiling, when he was gone no farther than the fifteenth or sixteenth of our kings. They do not add that dying we have no longer a desire to possess things. We are to discharge ourselves from these vulgar and hurtful humours. To this purpose it was that men first appointed the places of sepulture adjoining the churches, and in the most frequented places of the city, to accustom, says Lycurgus, the common people, women and children, that they should not be startled at the sight of a corpse, and to the end that the continual spectacle of bones, graves, and the funeral obsequies should put us in mind of our frail condition. It was formerly the custom to enliven banquets with slaughter, and to combine with the repast the dire spectacle of men contending with the sword, the dying in many cases falling upon the cups and covering the tables with blood. And as the Egyptians, after their feasts, were wont to present the company with a great image of death, by one that cried out to them, Drink and be merry, for such shalt thou be when thou art dead. So it is my custom to have death not only in my imagination, but continually in my mouth. Neither is there anything of which I am so inquisitive and delight to inform myself as the manner of men's deaths, their words, looks, and bearing, 
nor any places in history am I so intent upon, and it is manifest enough by my crowding in examples of this kind that I have a particular fancy for that subject. If I were a writer of books, I would compile a register with a comment of the various deaths of men. He who should teach men to die would at the same time teach them to live. The Caracas made one, to which he gave that title, but it was designed for another and less profitable end. Peradventure, some one may object, that the pain and terror of dying so infinitely exceed all manner of imagination, that the best fencer will be quite out of his play when it comes to the push. Let them say what they will. To premeditate is doubtless a very great advantage, and besides, is it nothing to go so far, at least, without disturbance or alteration? Moreover, nature herself assists and encourages us. If the death be sudden and violent, we have not leisure to fear. If otherwise, I perceive that, as I engage further in my disease, I naturally enter into a certain loathing and disdain of life. I find I have much more ado to digest this resolution of dying, when I am well in health, than when languishing of a fever. And by how much I have less to do with the commodities of life, by reason that I begin to lose the use and pleasure of them, by so much I look upon death with less terror, which makes me hope that the further I remove from the first and the nearer I approach to the latter, I shall the more easily exchange the one for the other. And as I have experienced in other occurrences that, as Caesar says, things often appear greater to us at a distance than near at hand, I have found that being well, I have had maladies in much greater horror than when really afflicted with them. The vigor wherein I am now, the cheerfulness and delight wherein I now live, make the contrary state appear in so much greater disproportion to my present condition, that by imagination I magnify those inconveniences by one half, and apprehend them to be much more troublesome than I find them really to be, when they lie the most heavy upon me. I hope to find death the same." But let us observe in the ordinary changes and declinations we daily suffer, how nature deprives us of the light and sense of our bodily decay. What remains to an old man of the vigor of his youth and better days? Alas, to the old men what portion of life remains? Caesar, to an old weather-beaten soldier of his guards, who came to ask him leave that he might kill himself, taking notice of his withered body and decrepit motion, pleasantly answered, Thou fanciest, then, that thou art yet alive. Should a man fall into this condition on the sudden, I do not think humanity capable of enduring such a change. But nature, leading us by the hand, an easy and, as it were, an insensible pace, step by step conducts us to that miserable state, and by that means makes it familiar to us, so that we are insensible of the stroke when our youth dies in us, though it be really a harder death than the final dissolution of a languishing body than the death of old age. For as much as the fall is not so great from an uneasy being to none at all, it is as from a sprightly and flourishing being to one that is troublesome and painful. The body, bent and bowed, has less force to support a burden, and it is the same with the soul, and therefore it is, that we are to raise her up firm and erect against the power of this adversary. For, 
as it is impossible she should ever be at rest while she stands in fear of it. So, if she once can assure herself, she may boast, which is a thing, as it were, surpassing human condition, that it is impossible that disquiet, anxiety, or fear, or any other disturbance should inhabit or have any place in her. Not the menacing look of a tyrant shakes her well-settled soul, nor turbulent Auster the prince of the stormy Adriatic, nor yet the strong hand of thundering Jove such a temper moves. She is, then, become sovereign of all her lusts and passions, mistress of necessity, shame, poverty, and all other injuries of fortune. Let us, therefore, as many of us as can, get this advantage. Tis the true and sovereign liberty here on earth that fortifies us wherewithal to defy violence and injustice, and to condemn prisons and chains. I will keep thee in fetters and chains, in custody of a savage keeper. A god will, when I asked him, set me free. This god, I think, is death. Death is the term of all things. Our very religion itself has no surer human foundation than the contempt of death. Not only the argument of reason invites us to it, for why should we fear to lose a thing which, being lost, cannot be lamented? But, also, seeing we are threatened by so many sorts of death, it is not infinitely worse eternally to fear them all than once to undergo one of them. And what matters it, when it shall happen, since it is inevitable? To him that told Socrates, The thirty tyrants have sentenced thee to death, and nature them, said he. What a ridiculous thing it is to trouble ourselves about taking the only step that is to deliver us from all trouble. As our birth brought us the birth of all things, so in our death is the death of all things included. And therefore to lament that we shall not be alive a hundred years since is the same folly as to be sorry we were not alive a hundred years ago. Death is the beginning of another life. So did we weep, and so much it cost us to enter into this, and so did we put off our former veil in entering into it. Nothing can be a grievance that is but once. Is it reasonable so long to fear a thing that will so soon be dispatched? Long life and short are by death all made one, for there is no long nor short to things that are no more. Aristotle tells us that there are certain little beasts upon the banks of the river Hypanis that never live above a day. They which die at eight of the clock in the morning die in their youth, and those that die at five in the evening in their great decrepitude. Which of us would not laugh to see this moment of continuous put into the consideration of weal or woe? The most and the least of ours, in comparison with eternity, or yet with the duration of mountains, rivers, stars, trees, and even of some animals, is no less ridiculous. But nature compels us to it. Go out of this world, she says, as you entered into it. The same pass you made from death to life, without passion or fear, the same, after the same manner, repeat from life to death. Your death is a part of the order of the universe, tis a part of the life of the world.' 